CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media. This is the Mojon Sports Podcast, a deeper dive into the great personalities we know and love. Now, here's your host, Bob the Moj Marjanovic. Welcome to MojonSports.com. It's the Moj, Bob Marjanovic with you. Welcome to episode 13 of The Bio. In this episode, we speak with Kelly Rudy, longtime Hockey Night in Canada analyst, former National Hockey League goaltender. We talked to him about his playing days growing up in Edmonton, learning how to play hockey. We talk about some of the highs and lows, some of the battles that he had with mental health. And Kelly also tells us of a rather nasty streak that he had as a player that he finds embarrassing now. As well, we'll talk about his transition, his very successful transition into the broadcasting world. Kelly Rudy, next. You're listening to the Mojon Sports Podcast. Redefine how you lead. Take the next step in your leadership journey with Ignite Management. Become a leader that positively impacts those around you. Create an environment where your team thrives. Be in control of your own development with a detailed analysis of your leadership style, complete with actionable insights and recommendations. Visit ignitemanagement.ca for more info. This is the Mojon Sports Podcast. Time now for our feature bio. Here's Bob the Moj Marjanovic. Welcome to episode 13 of Mojon Sports. Our guest for this episode is the one and only Kelly Rudy from Hockey Night in Canada. Of course, Roger Sportsnet, longtime NHL goaltender. Kelly, thanks for doing this. Glad to have you on board. Yeah, my pleasure, Bob. We've known each other for so long now. It's got to be over 20-some years now. I tell this story, and I know I even got ridiculed a couple of times on air because I'd mentioned it so many times, but... When I first started on CKST 1040, before it was even TSN or the yeah. team at that point, we had our own little show and we had you on and you were at the Westin there in downtown Vancouver and we were going to get you on and you said, well, where's your studio? The fact that you came down and helped us out and walked into the studio and joined us in studio when we were relatively peons, I'll never forget that. That's 2000, man. So it's 22 years. It's going on a quarter of a century. Yes, but we knew each other before that, yeah, we did work in the days at SportsU and yeah. covering the NHL and all that. So yeah, even longer. You're right. The bio. We're going to talk about Kelly Rudy today. Usually Kelly Rudy's talking about other people, but today we focus on you. Born in Edmonton, take us through Kelly Rudy's childhood growing up. Oh, I had a magical childhood, Bob. I grew up, my mom and dad, and I had an older brother, and we grew up in the West End of Edmonton. I thought life was perfect. I played sports, all sports. I played summer sports, winter sports, racket sports. And so it was ballpark around when I was 11 years old, Bob, and I hadn't played organized hockey yet. And all my friends were playing. And I went to my mom and dad and I asked them, I think in the summer, I said, can I join a hockey team this winter? We weren't a sports family, but they gave me the best advice. They both said, no, what we'd like you to do, Kelly, is learn how to skate first. So I'd been on the ice a a little bit, even in fact, my mom and dad built a backyard rink for us when I was a kid. 
learned to skate not very well, but I was on the ice a little bit. And so that was great advice. So basically every day after school in the winter, I'd go to the local outdoor rink and try and learn how to skate a little bit. And that was great advice. And so then the next year when I was 12, they allowed me to join a team. As you can imagine, I wasn't very good. I was well behind everybody else, but I had a great time. That was the start of my hockey playing days when I would get cut every year. And this is not an exaggeration, Bob. I'd always get cut once, sometimes twice. And one year I got cut three times, but it didn't really take away my enthusiasm for the game until I was about 16 years old. And I went for another rep team. This is my last year of U17. And I go to the team and I thought I actually played quite well and I got released. So I was really discouraged that day. I went back home and my brother was there and I said, you know what, Ken, I think I'm going to quit. I've just had enough and hockey's not for me. And clearly it's not going in the direction that I had hoped. He was quick to answer. He goes, there's another double A team that just called and they would like you to come try out tomorrow and just give this one more chance. That's all. And if it doesn't work out there, yeah, that makes sense. Because by the way, I didn't think... I was ever going to be an athlete, Bob. That wasn't my goal in life. Growing up, my mom and dad and my brother, because we didn't have much money, the only vacations we could take, by the way, I don't mean only because it turned out to be a highlight of my life. We had a small camper and we'd go to Banff or Jasper or something and would camp for about a week, a really tiny camper. And so my goal in life, I wanted to be a park warden in Banff or Jasper or Yoho or Kootenai or something like that. And so that was my lifelong goal. As you can see, unfortunately, hockey got in the way, but changed everything. So when I went out that next day, it was a Saturday, I went out and somehow they only had one goalie. So by default, I made the team. Now that happened to be a team that we got off to an ordinary start. Then we started to get better and we ultimately won the city championships. And then we played for the provincial championships against Mike Vernon and his Calgary team. And we won that. And all of a sudden, my lousy hockey career started to gain some upward trajectory. And then that summer, you'll remember, Bob, that was the summer of 78. We weren't drafted in WHL back then. You were sent letters. And New West sent me a letter and Medicine Tiger sent me a letter to go try out. I was really hopeful that I was going to make the St. Albert Saints in the AJHL. I had no idea, really, no history about the WHL. Or, but I chose to go to Medicine Hat because it was closer to home. And I thought, I'm going to get cut anyways. That's just my history. And so the second day of training camp, our coach was a guy by the name of Vic Stasiak. Bob, I don't know if you remember Vic. Coach the Canucks in the early 70s. Legendary hockey man. He was part of that famous Uke line back in the day. And so Vic was our coach. He calls me into the office the second day after practice. And as you can imagine, I think I know what the conversation is going to be like. Thank you very much, Kelly, for coming out, and maybe we will invite you back next year. So I'm a 17-year-old kid. I go into the coach's room. I sit down, and almost immediately, Vic tells me that I've made the Medicine Hat Tigers, and I'm in shock. That's the first time in my entire life that I had made a team without getting cut somewhere else along the line. I said, we've got a problem. I said, I've only brought two medicine hat, one pair of jeans and two t-shirts because I I expected to get cut and go home. It's not like I brought a suitcase full of goodies and that I expected to be there a month or half a season. And so we had a bit of a chuckle. And then Vic was such an engaging person. 
that he regaled me with stories for about the next hour and 55 minutes, because there's about a two hour meeting of two legendary goaltenders that he played with, Terry Sawchuk and Glenn Hall. I'm right in my wheelhouse, right? It doesn't get any better than a 17-year-old kid hearing about two legends that my coach had played with and their different personalities and everything. It was just magical. It's crazy. First off, I think every time you see your brother, he probably wants like a commission on the salary that you made. <laughs> He's never received one, by the way. Hey, if I was your brother, I would be on you like so badly. Kelly, remember that time I told you not to quit? The crazy thing is, Kelly, a lot of times when you talk to people, they have this mindset about they're determined, they're going to get through, they're going to find a way. And it sounds like you were on the other end of the spectrum. What kind of changed for you in terms of that mindset of going, oh, I'm just going to get cut to I'm going to actually do something with my career? First of all, I'll answer to the question about my brother, Ken. He's wildly successful, so he doesn't need a commission from me. So <laughs> good there. But like all athletes, I was hugely competitive. So why I took getting cut stride doesn't really mesh with the whole story. But I guess, I think I did see it truthfully. Like most of the times I got cut, I deserved it. I just wasn't as good as the other goalies. It's not as though you can look at yourself and look at the other players in your situation and lie. If you're honest, you look and go, you know what? I'm just not quite as good. Maybe my last year of U17, when I got cut that first time, I think that time is maybe why I was discouraged and was going to quit because I personally thought I was as good as the other guy. Now, the other guy had played the year before, and so there's history there, and so it is hard to make that choice and make a different decision. And then after that, I just remember I, my competitive nature just grew and grew. Some of it I'm not proud of. When I was in junior, and you think of those days in the 70s and early 80s, I played three years in Medicine Hat starting in 78. Hockey was different, right? It was wild and brawls and I participated in the fights and I did things that are disappointing to me now when I found out and I didn't even recognize how reckless I was. But in retirement, I remember walking to the Pittsburgh arena before a playoff game, I believe somewhere around 2010 or 2009, something like that. And Troy Loney, you'd remember Troy, and he had a great NHL career. I believe he won two cups with Pittsburgh in the early 90s. And he was with his son, and we had known each other because Troy played in Lethbridge in junior. We, you know, shared pleasantries walking to the arena. And then he goes, son, you know that scar on the back of my leg? This is the guy that did it. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, Kelly, don't you remember? There's that scrum in your crease, and I had been knocked down, and you, on purpose stepped on the back of my leg with your skate and cut me. And, and I was aghast, Bob. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did something like that. And then shortly after, and I don't know how I was having the conversation, but Barry Trotz, he was playing in Regina at the same time. And I did the same to him in a goal mouth scrum. And, and so I guess that's, I'm going to try and paint it as my competitiveness, but that's crossing the line and way offside. Speaking offside, I got in the confession phase here. I was one of those fans at Queens Park Arena that probably threw like a Coke cup or something at you because you know how crazy it was at Queens Park Arena back in the day. I remember your medicine had Tiger teams. You had that little Stevie Sajura. He was like a little water bug, five foot five, five foot six, a guy who could probably play in today's NHL. But back then, with that size, he never got a look. But yeah, I, I was one of those guys throwing crap at you at Queens Park Arena, Kelly. So with a, you and every other goalie in the Western Hockey League. 
That was crazy back in those days. And you're right. Stevie Tajura would be in the NHL if it was today's game. He was by far our best player, leading scorer every year, tremendous athlete, tremendous person. And unfortunately, back then, if you were under, what, 5'10 or something, they didn't even consider you. Now, Stevie did go over to Japan. He had a really good career there, but he was a longtime AHL player. And if I'm not mistaken, in Portland, Maine is where he really became super popular and he may still be there. He settled there and he's done really well for himself. But Queens Park was crazy because you would remember this, Bob, and the great thing about it, since you experienced it, back then the Bruins were big and burly and especially my first year when we were 17, most of us were 17 on, on that team. We'd go into Queens Park and in warm-up, this is not an exaggeration, these are facts, the Bruins would do three things to us in warm-up. They would take our net, bring it into their end. We'd somehow get the net back. They'd take all our pucks. We'd somehow get a few more pucks back and shoot on me. And or they'd come down and shoot on me and warm up. Anything <laughs> happened. And we went out to New West, I'd say, we'd make a Western trip twice every year. And I believe that happened every time. We were petrified. Like I said, we're a young team. And the Bruins back then probably had Boris Fistrick and a whole bunch of other big guys. And they had their fun with us. I'll tell yeah. you this story, Kelly, to interject. We did a 25-year uh, reunion with the Bruins, and I got a bunch of guys to talk about playing against them. And Glenn Hanlon says the exact same thing, except that, remember, they had that round-robin affair for the league championship in New West? Yeah. Yep. And Glenn says in the pregame warm-up, they'd shoot a puck down. Boris Fistrick would come down, the late Boris Fistrick. Hmm. One puck would go in, four would go back the Bruins' way. So, like, right. he just keep coming down and shooting, like, three, four pucks back. They wind up losing the game, and Halen says after the game, they're in the dressing room, and they're like, tomorrow night, they don't get our pucks. They didn't even talk about offensive zone time or dump-ins. <laughs> the whole thing started, like, they're not getting our pucks in pregame warm-up tomorrow. And I remember talking to the late Boris Fistrick about it, and Boris said, yeah, I'd go down. He goes, I'd grab three and four, and what were they going to do? It was different times. Hey, you go to the Islanders, and the one thing I want to throw your way, how much pressure was there? And I say that because the old guard was moving on, and you were part of the newer group that was supposed to carry the torch. You know, I'm going with that transition, you, Pat LaFontaine, and others. Yeah. Did you feel that pressure in terms of trying to maintain that standard? I'm hesitating, so I suppose I did. There's a lot to that story, though, Bob. When I was drafted in 1980 to the Islanders, even though I was a second round draft choice, I was quite surprised to be invited to training camp because back then not all draft choices were in fact invited to camp. And so I was quite surprised. So September of 1980, I go to Islanders training camp and I hope I don't miss anybody, but I was sixth or seventh on the depth chart. So when you put it in perspective, they had Billy Smith, they had Chico Resch, they had Roly Melanson, they had Richard Brodeur because he Richard hadn't gone to Vancouver yet. They had Jim Park. A year later, I think they grabbed Rob Holland from Pittsburgh and myself. And so I think when Richard Brodeur left the organization, that's when they brought in Rob Holland. So when I'm there, I'm looking like this up at the depth chart going, holy, you have a lot of people that you have to leap over to have any chance of playing in the National Hockey League. I played one more year of junior, then I played two years in the minors, and I started to gain a little bit of traction. And then at one point, they got rid of Chico. Then uh, Jim Park, I think, retired. And I think at that point, I was now firmly in 
third place spot behind Billy and Rolly and then myself. And then when they finally got rid of Rolly my second year and I started to play a little bit more, I did feel the pressure, although I was quite naive, Bob. When you're young, I was, what, 22 when I made the Islanders, and you're quite naive to the whole scenario. I started to feel it a little bit more when I started to play some playoff games because of their history. And when I made them, they just won their fourth cup. And uh, my first year, we lost Edmonton in the finals. So you're aware of it. But I'd like to always say when you're a young player, I don't know if you put too much pressure on yourself because you're just trying to forge your own career and, and you don't have time to really think about what's happened in the past, so to speak. One of the highlights is 1987, the Easter epic. Pat LaFontaine scores in the fourth overtime period. You made 73 saves that night. It ended, the game did, before 2 a.m. on Easter morning. I remember that night because a bunch of buddies and I had done the usual thing when you're young. You get together at a buddy's house at 5 o'clock, pre-drink, go out. We had a few cocktails down at Mugs and Jugs in New Westminster. (laughs) <laughs> then we came back to our buddy's place We turn, and the game's still on. We're like, what the hell? It's 10.30 and this game is still going that started at 4 o'clock Pacific time. Yep. What do you remember from that night? First of all, when I came home that summer and people had shared their stories with me about what they remember of the game, very similar to your experience, Bob. So remember back in 87, there wasn't the bug in the corner of the screen telling you the score. Mm-hmm. So what most people told me is when they came home, they thought it was a replay. They didn't recognize immediately that the game was still going on. So I remember that going into that game, we were the underdog. We're playing in Washington Saturday night, hockey night in Canada. We were down in that series 3-1. We fought back to tie it. But going into game seven, this is what I think is pretty remarkable about that victory. We were without uh, Dennis Potvin, without Mike Bossy, without Brent Sutter. And Brian Trotcher, he was playing with a separated left shoulder. In fact, if you ever watch the highlights, you can see Brian Trotchy had this mound of padding on his left shoulder. So I find it remarkable. He tied the game too late in the third period with a backhand. But I remember that Washington had the better of the play for the first 60 minutes and probably the first overtime. And then we started to really gain a lot of momentum. And uh, if not for Bob Mason, the game would have ended earlier because I thought we were really taking it to Washington in double overtime, triple overtime. And ultimately, as you mentioned, Pat scored in quadruple overtime. What I remember about that play is that Ken Leiter was a defenseman we had, and he was paired with Gord Deneen. And Ken Leiter carried the puck up the ice, threw it around the boards, if I remember. And Gord Deneen pinched in from his right point position. And that's important part of this story, because since he pinched in his right-handed shooting defenseman, Pat LaFontaine now uh, replaced him on the right point, so to speak, and he was the high guy. So Gordonine pinches in, he circles the back of the net to the left corner and throws a puck out in front towards Bob Mason. And I think it hits Kevin Hatcher's stick or skate and goes back to where Pat LaFontaine now is protecting Gord defense position. And Pat somehow corrals this rolling puck and spins around. And a good Western Canadian, Dale Henry from Saskatoon, is positioned right in front of Bob Mason. And so Pat somehow corrals this puck, turns, spins, fires the shot, and Dale Henry is screening Bob perfectly. The puck ends up in the net, and I'm in disbelief. I don't move. There's video of it. 
And I don't know if it's Hockey Night in Canada or the U.S. feed. They show me immediately after the goal goes in and I don't react. I don't put my hands in the air. I don't do anything. I wait for at least a full two seconds because I'm in disbelief and I don't want to let my guard down in case the goal is disallowed for some reason. All of a sudden, I recognize we won the game. Randy Boyd, one of our defensemen, he comes racing down. He hugs me. We fall in a heap on the ice. Half the guys go to Pat to celebrate with him. Half the guys celebrate with me. And I was so darn tired, Bob, that after the little bit of media we did, I'm in the dressing room. The game ended at four minutes to two in the morning. And I'm in the dressing room ballpark around 2.15. And I'm exhausted. I take off my skates. And this is not an exaggeration. I'm so dehydrated that my toes just curl under. So what did I wisely do, Bob? I didn't take a Gatorade or a bottle of water. I drank two cold beers quickly and they went directly <laughs> to my head. <laughs> and uh, that's a, the quickest buzz I've ever had in my life. More with Kelly Rudy coming up after this quick break. You're listening to the Mojon Sports Podcast. Whenever it comes to tires or meeting your automotive needs, I only send my friends to one place, OK Tire in Langley. OK Tire in Langley is more than just tires. It's about complete automotive care, and it's about being treated right by my good friends, the Delaney family. Delaney's OK Tire in Langley, 19863 Fraser Highway, or call them at 604-530-2545. Kelly, you played for a lot of great coaches. Daryl Sutter in San Jose. You had Al Arbor in Long Island, Barry Melrose in L.A. Who probably had the biggest impact on you and why? Al Arbor originally, for sure, and he still to this day is a man that I greatly admire and we miss him dearly. All of us the guys that ever had Al as a coach basically say the same thing. Al had a set of rules for the team and that never changed for anybody. The rules were the rules. And in fact, and Dennis Potvin taught me about being on time. And so that was number one thing for Al Arbor. In fact, before I even became a New York Islander, Dennis Potvin, whom I think is one of the greatest players to ever play the game, not just defensemen, but he ended up showing up late for a bus to Philadelphia one time and, and Al sat him out. Even though Dennis got to the game on time, Al was, you're not addressing. And so Al sent, sent that message to all of us. I remember my first year, we won a game in Los Angeles. I played a rare start that first year for me. And we had a couple of days off in LA and we had a boardroom in the hotel and we're going to drink a few beers and then we're to decide where we're going to go drinking later that night. That was the thing back then, right? Lots of beer drinking. And I showed up about five minutes late and Dennis just tore into me. But those were lessons we all learned from Al. And what all of us say about Al Arbor is that in my case, I had a fantastic mom and dad, fantastic dad, but Al was like a second father to me. He really cared. And I knew even if Al was mad at me after my performance, when I put my head on the pillow at night, I always knew that Al cared about me. And that was with all my best coaches. And then I had Terry Simpson. He was great. I had Tom Webster, which I love and we miss him as well. He just passed away during the pandemic and Tom had a great heart. And we actually had quite a bit of success with Tom early in LA, just couldn't quite get over the hump. And then we had Barry Melrose and Barry, frankly, Bob, he saved my career. Back in 92, 93, I was going through some 
issues. I didn't know exactly what it was. Now looking back, knowing about mental health, I was having mental health issues and I had rational thoughts going into the year that turned into irrational thoughts. And I went from being really good and one of the better goaltenders in the National Hockey League to the worst in December and January of 92, 93. And if not for Barry, he reached out to me. He knew what my troubles were and they weren't physical. It was mental and he was able to connect me with Tony Robbins. And so I had a number of one-on-one -on -one meetings with Tony and he got me out of that ditch in that really dark and lonely place I found myself in. And I ended up playing another five years. In fact, that year we went to the Stanley Cup finals. So forever indebted to, to Barry. And then I had Larry Robinson, really good man. And I had Daryl and I don't have the fondest memories of Daryl, but can't deny he's a good coach. Did you ever have a rock bottom where you thought it was over? Oh, 100%. 92, 93, December and January. I was 100% convinced because of my irrational thoughts that I was done. I was not thinking about if I can ever come out of this situation and resurrect my career. It was about what am I going to do with my life basically at the end of the year because my career is coming to a, a standstill. And I had a lot of pressure on myself and I didn't help myself any because I was adding to that pressure, wondering about my family life because uh, we had two children. Donna was pregnant with our third and it's a very lonely place. And back then we weren't talking about mental health. No. I don't know if I would have anyways, because I didn't realize what I was going through, but until I was able to start talking with Tony, my wife knew that I was going through this because it was impossible to hide. I really feel strongly that it's important to talk about it. And that's why I'm very open about my situation. And much to my surprise, I don't want to take this conversation away from where we're going, Bob, but much to my surprise, I, I was able to get the help I needed back then. And I pretty much went through life for the next 20 some years with a little bit of anxiety and things that all of us deal with. But in the summer of 2019, my thoughts again went from how much longer can I be on national television? You've had a good run. When's it coming to an end? And all of a sudden they went to completely irrational thoughts and I had to deal and address my own mental health issues again. Talk about more good days. So that's the cause that you really are behind. And we'll get to that. I just want to wrap up LA because clearly we've got to talk about Wayne Gretzky, Kings hockey at that time and how big of a trade that was. What do you remember about the trade? And what do you remember about just being in LA at that time, being on a team with Wayne Gretzky? First of all, I remember Wayne's trade because I was in Banff with my brother, Ken, training. It was in August, and every summer we'd finish off my training with extensive work in the mountains to improve my max VO2 and just to make sure that I showed it up at camp in fantastic condition. And I remember Wayne getting traded there, and it was shocking. I had no idea what four or five months later that... I'd be in the same boat that I would be traded to Los Angeles. And Wayne had a lot to do with it. He explained to me later, and so did Bruce McNall, that when our season started to go south in New York that year, it was Wayne that went up to Mr. Bill Torrey at the All-Star game and said, hey, listen, what would it take to get Kelly from the Islanders to L.A.? And I guess the story goes, Torrey explained to Wayne that I was not on the market and he wasn't willing to do that. And then... Ultimately, our season looked more and more bleak. Bruce McNall started to get involved and Bill Torrey decided that maybe it might be the right thing to do for our organization to make a real transition. As you mentioned, we were a team that started to go younger and we were in transition. And other than the Easter epic, we didn't have a lot of playoff success. 
And so the trade was made and I was heartbroken and I felt uh, betrayed. I thought I was a loyal athlete. Teams always look for loyalty and I thought I was just that. I hoped that I was always going to be an Islander my entire life. I was mad at Bill Torrey for a long time. I hope the Islanders lost every single game for the next hundred years. And it took me a long, yeah, I'm true. I'm honest. And I, it took me a long time to get over that feeling. And then when I went to LA, it, it wasn't long after that when I discovered that this was going to be the best thing ever in my life. And I love playing there. I love playing with Wayne. I thought I knew celebrity because I played on those Islander teams with Potvin and Bossy and Trache and Smith and Gillies, all Hall of Famers. When you win four consecutive Stanley Cups and take a run at the fifth, and there's tons of media, but I got a glimpse of Wayne's fame in the 87 Canada Cup, but that's only for what were we together, about six weeks, right? And so when I went to LA and to see that change dramatically, that went from the Kings probably had about 10,000 fans at every game, and they were good hockey fans, but it was when Wayne went there that it just totally exploded. And I was to find out that Wayne is a, a, an incredible teammate. As an example, I remember I used to read two newspapers before every practice in my stall and uh, be drinking my coffee, reading the newspapers. And inevitably, when I get to the business section and I'd read every once in a while, there's a, an article about Wayne. He may have signed a new sponsorship program with maybe Samsung or whomever. And inevitably, about a month later, we'd always get tons of that product in our stall. And so Wayne wow. always took great care of us. I remember there was a player, and Peter Praisler, if you're watching this, my apologies, but Peter was a young player from Czechoslovakia back then, and he was a really highly skilled left-handed shooting defenseman, but he didn't like the physical side of the game. And so Peter was playing in about his 10th game or something, and he was behind the net. It's in the third period. It's a tie game. And he throws the puck away because he's going to get hit. And uh, the other team intercepts the puck. They score on me. We lose the game and I'm furious. And so Wayne and I are in the shower together, but it's a group shower. And, and I'm furious. And typically after a loss, Bob, I was furious at myself. And this night, one of the rare nights, I was furious with Peter Praisler. And so I'm throwing shampoo bottles around. I'm throwing bars of soap. I'm swearing. I'm saying a whole bunch of bad things about Peter Praisler. And finally, after my tantrum dissipates, I don't know, after two minutes or five minutes or whatever, Wayne just stays in there. And then he gave me the greatest advice ever. He goes, Kelly, let everybody earn a living. If Peter's not good enough, they'll find somebody else. And I thought, man, what grace, right? So Wayne is charged with the duty of turning around a franchise that wasn't very good for a lot of years. And here it's all on his shoulders. And he had the grace to put me in my spot and have some compassion for Peter. It was beautiful. All right. You're a big celebrity in LA with Gretzky hanging out, doing all these things. I had a bucket list thing that I never crossed off and I can't now. Did you ever make it to the Playboy Mansion? And I know if Don is in the room, you might want to take the fifth right now. But did you ever make it to visit Hef and the boys? Yes, I did. And the Donna came with me. <laughs> I'm in the clear there. We went New Year's Eve. I can't recall what year, but we had an afternoon game that day in Anaheim. And I'm happy to say that we had a really great game. I went home and we had a car service take us to the Playboy Mansion. We rang in New Year's. It was a really subdued. I can't remember Hef's wife's name, but she was from Vancouver. Kimberly uh, Conrad, I think. Yeah. yeah yes. Yeah. And so 
I heard the stories where the Playboy Mansion used to be pretty crazy. And when he married Kimberly Conroy, that it, it became very mellow. Stanley Cup Finals, Montreal, you lose three games in a row in overtime. Everybody always talks about Marty McSorley, but the series was still yet to be played. And I know it was people will say it was a turning point, but in all fairness to Marty, who's a great guy, there were still more games to be played. You lost three games in overtime in succession. You look back at that series now, how do you look back at it? Do you look back at it as an accomplishment? Do you look back at it with frustration? What emotion comes through when you think about that series? Most disappointing hockey memory I have, Bob. Wow. So, yeah. So I know that it should be a pleasant memory and something of accomplishment, but when you get that far and you lose, and in particular, as you mentioned, lose three consecutive games in overtime, it's crushing. And especially the way I look at it anyways, I'm the goalie of record and you're not supposed to lose three consecutive games in overtime. And I take that personally and I still do. Now it doesn't haunt me. But when I talk about it, it's still something that I don't enjoy. As I mentioned, my dad was amazing. My dad, until he was really sick at the end, I never heard him swear in my entire life. He was a really patient man. And I remember my mom and dad and my brother, his family were in LA for the two home games we had. And I remember taking my brother and my dad into the trainer's room after we lost the second or the third overtime game, the second at home. And just the three of us were there. I remember not much conversation going on. And then I said a really bad swear word. And I thought, <laughs> I wonder if my dad is disappointed in me. Not that we lost, but that I had, I reduced myself to swearing in front of him. Oh, wow. More with Kelly Rudy coming up after this break. You're listening to the Mojon Sports Podcast. Every athlete is looking for a competitive edge. And you can find one at stokodesign.com. The K1 Embrace system wraps your legs with over 90 feet of high-strength support cables that are directly integrated into an ultra-comfortable compression tape. The cabling is positioned to naturally move with you, supporting your knee when you need it most. You can customize your level of support with two control dials in the waistband. This is the future of knee support. stokodesign.com Kelly, you start transitioning to broadcasting while you're playing. What was it about being in front of a TV camera that appealed to you? Well, you're one of the few people that remember, Bob, that I was still playing in L.A. when I had my first break. It was 1995. We missed the playoffs by one point that year. We were in Chicago, and uh, that night in Chicago, we needed a victory or a tie, and we would eclipse San Jose and get into the last playoff position. Unfortunately, we lost in Chicago. So we flew home the next day. Donna, my wife says, John Shannon has just called him for people out there that might not be familiar. John at the time was the executive producer of Hockey Night in Canada. And so he asked me to call him back and I did just that. But it goes back further. It was my early years in New York, Bob, when You start to get interviewed quite a bit. And I was a really shy kid growing up in Edmonton, like really shy. And, but I found something intriguing about broadcasting and the whole experience of getting interviewed. And I was one of the guys that I really enjoyed watching hockey. Not all players do, but I did. And not only did I enjoy watching the games, but I loved the intermissions and I loved to watch the interviewer. And I loved to watch the players get interviewed and how they handled it and whether or not they tried in the interview to give thoughtful, insightful answers. 
I made a promise to myself that I'm going to try and get better at this. And so I really took it upon myself to maybe separate myself a little bit from some of the other players and not throw anybody under the bus, but give answers that maybe just weren't normal. I like to give a little bit of insight. And so in 95, when I was given that opportunity to go to Toronto and work with Ron McLean, alternating with Don Cherry, it was a dream come true. By the way, as John mentioned in that phone conversation, I was not his first choice. Gretzky was his first choice. And luckily for me, Wayne turned it down. So I was given an opportunity to go there and I loved it. I was there for the first round of those playoffs. Next year, we again missed the playoffs. And so I went for a month started to get the bug. And then I continued two more years as a player when we either didn't make the playoffs or missed or lost in the first round. And so through those four years, I was really hopeful that at some point when my career came to an end, that I would get invited back. I didn't know it would be on hockey night in Canada, but I was hoping I had opened the door somewhere. And luckily for me in the summer of 98, when I retired, I had this agreement with John Shannon that I'd be hired and somehow I'm still here, Bob. It's interesting. I remember chatting with you when you first started in the business and you said one of the real tough things you had, one of the obstacles you had to overcome was that it was tough for you to criticize guys that you played with or knew or played against or whatever. And I guess it's gotten easier as the years have gone by because nobody's in the league anymore that you played with, but it's gotten a lot easier as you get more detached from the players to be critical. And I know that it's extremely difficult for you because as many former athletes who look at the game now you played the game you know what they're going through right that's exactly right bob and back then i certainly not only would have been hesitant but i would have been afraid of criticizing although i did one time when i was still a player i was really on matthew barnaby for something he did in a playoff game and i regretted it after and it's not really my personality even to this day when i'm quite critical. It's something that it's hard for me to do, but I remember thinking, I wonder if I was now playing in San Jose and Buffalo was in town. And I remember thinking I was sitting on the bench at night. I wasn't playing. And I wondered to myself, I wonder if Matthew Barnaby ever heard what I said about him. I wonder if he's going to take my head off if he ever gets a chance or do something in retaliation to what I said, but he never did. We've, we've got a great friendship. I can easily see when there's new broadcasters out there that they are hesitant and it's only natural, yeah. not only because of you, you've got friendships or you have relationships or you understand how difficult the game is anyways. Even a guy like Kevin Bieksa, as great as he is, he rarely has much to say in a negative way about a player. And it takes a long time. It just does. And in my entire broadcasting career, I bet I've only really gone after, really gone after guys 10 or 15 times. Other than that, I may point out mistakes or be a tiny bit critical, but that's not the way in which I normally behave. And so if I really go after somebody, it's probably for good reason. Kelly, you're working obviously with Hockey Night analysts there. You're a color analyst on the Flames broadcast with Rick Ball. How long do you see yourself doing this for? Great question. My contract's done at the end of this year. I believe I'm still having as much fun as when I first started full-time in 98. I believe that I still put in the work because I love hockey. I'm lucky because my wife, Donna, likes hockey. So we watch games together on occasion. If we go to a pub, we watch a game together. So I still have a passion for broadcasting. One of the things, Bob, I'd like to do it. I'm not sure how many more years, but I just turned 61 years old. I think I'd like to do it ballpark another four years and then 
reassess my life at that point. But one of the things, Bob, that I remember when I was coming to an end as a player, I was having this discussion with my lawyer because I told him that I'm going to retire at the end of the year. I had told my family that and Lloyd asked me, he said, why do you want to retire now? You still have game. You can still play another year or beyond maybe. And I said, Lloyd, I can explain it to you this way. And this is when I knew I needed to retire from the game, Bob, because wins didn't feel as special anymore and losses didn't hurt as much anymore. When I was player and when I was super competitive and really at the height of my game, it was hard for me to fall asleep at the end of a game at night because I was either so excited that we won and I played well or I was so mad at myself because I underperformed. I'm not there yet as a broadcaster. I still feel that excitement. Still after a game, I still get jacked about my performance and I still get mad at myself if I'm not up to the level, the standard I set for myself. And so I think, Bob, when that time comes, I'll know it because I've gone through it as a player. But right now I still feel the excitement for the broadcast. Now, there's two entirely different things, Bob. Doing studio work is entirely different from doing color. And so that also keeps it exciting for me. You know, studio work is something I've done a lot since 95. And it takes a different eye as opposed to doing color where things come at you quicker and you just have to react and work with your producer. So for those reasons, sometimes I get my truck after doing a Flames regional game as color. And I'm as jacked as I, I was as a player because color doesn't come as naturally to me as in studio. And so I have to work at it harder. So when I think I have a really good night, it's really exciting for me. Yeah, you got to carry that Rick Bull guy. I don't even know how that guy's <laughs> on here right now. It's just, it's crazy. Man, Kelly, know, right, to have that guy sitting beside me? Yeah, Baller's a great guy. I'm only kidding around with that, obviously. We talked about it earlier, more good days. It's a cause that's very special to you. Your daughter, Caitlin, you mentioned, dealt with anxiety, also with OCD. You've dealt with yeah. mental health issues, as you pointed out in this interview. Tell people about more good days and how they can get more information and how they can help out. When Caitlin was first diagnosed with anxiety and OCD, as you mentioned, Bob, in 2005, her life was completely unmanageable. She couldn't go to school, couldn't go to dance, things that she loved dearly. She couldn't do sleepovers. She found all these excuses why she couldn't. And then when we were finally given the diagnosis, it all made sense to us. And so she had extensive therapy for years. And I, I remember she came to us after four years of therapy. And this is where it's really profound. She said, this is where the genesis of the shirt and the slogan come from. She goes, mom, dad, I'm starting to have more good days than bad. And that's quite the eye opener when after four years, you find out your child's only having more good days than bad and not a lot of great days yet. And we as a family, we tried to learn as much as possible about mental health. She had a real bad setback in 2012. She tried to go to UBCO in Kelowna. And she, after a month, her thoughts came back, roaring back, in fact, and she couldn't leave her dorm and was, life became unmanageable again. So we decided to come bring her home. And somehow through all that, what she would call, these are not my words, hers, but through that embarrassing situation. And she, she was so disappointed in herself that, and again, getting a lot more therapy in the spring of 2013, we had a publicist at CBC that knew our family story. And he suggested that if possible, that it would be a great story to share publicly. 
it's not for everybody to do that. But so I asked Caitlin if she'd be interested and she said she would be. So the publicist set up a couple of newspaper articles. Joe O'Connor with National Post did a just a phenomenal article. And then Lauren LaRose with the Canadian Press also did an amazing article and captured Caitlin's spirit differently, but beautifully. And what she's gone through for a large part of her life. Then in the summer of 2019, when my thoughts went from what I considered rational to irrational, and then I needed to get the help I needed, I'll tell you this, Bob, and this is like a cautionary tale for people. Don't wait as long as I did. Even though I knew what was happening, even though I recognized what I was going through, I waited about a year to get the help I needed. And then I went on a regular basis. I went weekly for months and I feel a million times better. But when I decided to start sharing my story publicly, I needed Caitlin's strength. That's where I gathered my strength. If she can share her story, surely I can. Now, the thing about this story is if you're out there and you're watching this, you don't have to share your story publicly. We choose to, but the only thing I would suggest is get the help you need. Don't do it alone because it's way too painful. It's too difficult. And you won't believe the, the change in yourself if you get the help. If you find that you can share your story, great. But there's no pressure to do that. Just make sure you talk to family members, friends if you need to, and work in the right direction because it's game changer, right? I feel so much better not to suggest that I don't have bumps in the road. And I finally found out that I'm starting to get triggered now. I'd never been triggered in my life. And so I'm learning that new part of this journey. And But it, life can be good. Kelly, if people want more info, ways to help, how can they get in touch? Yes, they can follow our family on social media. They can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and I post stories. I think I'm going to post another one next week about what life looks like. And you can go to moregooddaysclothing.com and that'll direct you to the website where they sell their merchandise. And a portion of their proceeds, by the way, is donated to suicide prevention. And both Caitlin and her husband, Hayden, have experienced mental health issues for their life. They're amazing. Hayden just posted a story on, I think, More Good Days about his mental health journey, and it was very inspiring, and we're so darn proud of them. Kelly, this has been a great day. It's been awesome talking to you, talking about your journey, hearing the ups and the downs, and even if it's an inspiration to one person, it's going to be well worth the 45 minutes to help somebody else. Thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it, and continued success. Thanks, Bob. I really enjoyed this, and hopefully we can do it again. The Moj on Sports Podcast. For more episodes, check out MojonSports.com. CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media. 